This week on Buddhist Geeks, we're sharing a conversation that I engaged in with UFO researcher and Meta Perspective host James Landoli and Daniel Ingram, a longtime friend, teacher, guest of Buddhist Geeks, um, into a conversation about Dharma lineage in the 21st century. And uh, this originally aired on the Meta Perspective show. You can find that on YouTube. Highly recommend it. Um, that's hosted by James Landoli, who's uh, the one that's conducting this conversation or hosting the conversation originally. And if you're still down with Meta, um, you can also find Meta Perspective on Facebook. Um, they have a Facebook group there. So I uh, just wanted to let you know that's the context in which this conversation originally was uh recorded and very happy to be able to share this through a creative commons by attribution 4.0 international license which means that this conversation is free for you to share you could remix it you could adapt it you could edit it you could even sell it if you think it's that valuable uh, so long as you attribute uh, where it came from and who was involved and that's myself vince Vahuri horn James Landoli, Daniel Ingram. This was originally recorded for the Meta Perspective show on YouTube. So please enjoy. You're listening to Buddhist Geeks. Everybody, uh, welcome back to Meta Perspective, where we go meta on subjects like insight, awakening, and reality. And today we have a special little panel talk. We have uh, Vince Horn and Daniel Ingram. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, yeah, and ev everybody's going to be basically familiar with you guys, uh, pretty much. But uh, just uh, for people listening and watching, uh, can you guys both give a short intro uh, of yourself, starting with uh, Vince? Yeah, sure. Um, so the main thing that I'm known for, I guess, in the on the interwebs is running uh, and starting a project called Buddhist Geeks. Um, and one of our first uh, guests on that show on the podcast was uh, was actually Daniel. So Daniel was sort of an unofficial, I consider him an unofficial uh, founder of the company as well. Uh, thank you for uh, for being willing to be on a, a podcast that no one had heard of in, <laughs> in 2006. Um, yeah, and since that time, uh, I guess Buddhist Geeks has become sort of one of the many podcasts exploring the sort of intersection of modernity and um, contemplative practice and, you know, how, how are we continuing to relate to these Buddhist wisdom traditions, all the texts and the traditions that have been handed down, um, you know, while we're also on the internet and, you know, uh, living really complex lives and dealing with things like the ecological crisis. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, my day job, just trying to uh, teach meditation and also, you know, grapple with what the hell this even is that we're, that I'm doing <laughs> and teaching. Yeah. So I'm um, good to be here. So I'm Daniel Ingram. I'm a retired emergency medicine physician, also with training in epidemiology and some other things. And actually, Vince and I co-founded, um, it was really his suggestion, uh, the Dharma Overground, which is you know one of the forums where people talk about deep dive practice. So thank you to Vince for that inspiration, helping to get that up and running initially. Um, very important. And uh, so I also am... An author of the book Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, and I teach some meditation stuff. 
and um, the acting CEO and board chair of Emergence Benefactors, which is the charity to support the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium, which I also helped start with a whole lot of other people. And that's dedicated to bringing very ontologically neutral and um, methods uh, of science and research to the question of how to upgrade the mainstream publics and clinical world's understandings of what we're calling emergent phenomena, which is basically the highs, lows, and weirds of the meditative path that often get ignored or um, pathologized or made taboo, etc. And so our goal is to help upgrade the clinical understanding and public awareness of these things such that they can be just discussed like anything else rather than a strange taboo topic, which they currently often are in a lot of circles. Oh, thank you for that, Daniel. And, uh, you know, thank you so much, Vince and Daniel, for being here. I greatly appreciate it. Um, and, you know, there are a few things I know we want to discuss today. One thing was uh, kind of like lineages, so I guess you can say Dharma lineages. And also, uh, I kind of wanted to branch off into a 21st century Dharma thing, which actually sounds a lot like what uh, Vince is doing. Um, so as, as far as lineages, um, I guess, I, you know, I'm an outsider on that and the Dharma world so much. Uh, so, so, um, I guess, uh, you know, you know, you Vince and Daniel are, are actually associated with a similar lineage. Is that correct? This is really complicated. So there we go. the, the yeah. use of the term lineage <laughs> is it's, it's, uh, it's going to require a bit of unpacking here. Vince, you want to go ahead? Well, well, I mean, I I don't know if I'll be able to unpack it all, but I but I will say, you know, I do in some in some uh, general way do consider myself connected to Daniel in in a kind of familial way in the Dharma world because you were my first real teacher, Daniel. You know, your book was a huge impetus for me getting serious about meditation, and you know, having conversations with you um, back back then was really helpful and informative you introduced me to kenneth folk uh who i've stayed in contact with as a teacher since so i very much like in in the broad sense of the term lineage do consider us to be like part of the same family in some extended way um but i know that there's a lot of complexity around what that means and how other people interpret lineage um so i'll i'll i'll, let, I'll leave the unpacking part to you i think daniel but i did want to mention that um, thank you yeah i really appreciate all of that and I mean, we're all, this is a funny thing because we were all really back then to me in the spirit of just helping each other out, you know, people on the path who might have different, you know, have maybe have been doing it for a few more years than somebody else or whatever may have read more, done a little more practice or something. But really, to me, it was always very much in the spirit of friends, even if there may have been, you know, differences in skill sets. You know, there was a lot of people with different skill sets helping each other out, right? So we each had skill sets that some of the others didn't have. We all tried to help each other out in those regards. And it it does bring out these complex models of how people relate to spiritual families, right? Because lineage, as you mentioned, as Kenneth Folk is prone to pointing out, like it's really about family and all the stuff that can happen in families happen in lineages. Who's in the family, who's not in the family, who's on the inside of the family, who's on the outs with the family, who's the black sheep of the family. What does family mean? And that, that, you know, actually, I think I've been thinking a lot about how attachment theory plays into this, like in the formal psychological sense. And thinking when I actually see how people relate to lineages and Dharma teachers and Dharma friends, um, how I actually think you can pretty much just kind of peg people's attachment styles <laughs> related to 
how they relate to all of that, because I think the same dynamics play out again and again. That's not good science. That's just my empirical observation hypothesizing. So for those not familiar with attachment theory, it's like, so kind of how you bonded to parents and felt safe or didn't usually in early childhood, and then how that plays out and whether or not you feel securely attached or kind of anxiously or avoidantly attached. And um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. But the, the question of lineage in a Buddhist context is a really interesting one, because for a lot of history, lineage really meant the Sangha, which would be the order of monks and nuns, right? Until And then, but lineage also meant the people who may have had some degree of realization. So even in the old text, you find discussions of lineage and people who had various attainments who were not yet formally members of the Sangha, but they were known as lay people to have various attainments. And 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 then there's the question of like, does lineage mean you can teach or is it just that you're in the family? So, right, so lineage teachers often gets this added thing, right? It may be that monks are just, and nuns are just in the lineage Right, without you know qualifiers, they're just lineaged because they're ordained, right? And then there's the question of lay people who are not formally ordained or have never been formally ordained. Are they really the same status? And then there's the question of which lineage and whose lineage. So we come from a very ambiguous set of lineages of lay people who may have various relationships to monastic life and. So, for example, like one of the most influential teachers on me, Bill Hamilton, had no formal lineage transmission in the social ritualistic sense, despite having profound realizations in the Dharma sense, which from a certain point of view, like there's the Dharma attainment of change of lineage, which in theory, just a meditative experience might make you in the lineage, right? But then if you don't have the social designation, what does that mean? And, and then there's the whole question, sorry, I'm just throwing out a lot of stuff kind of shotgun style that we may riff on, of like people who were ordained and are now not ordained. Do they have the same lineage status when they disrobe as they did when they were ordained? This gets really complicated, right? And what about people who are asked to teach? Who's allowed to ask people to teach, right? And so like for those of us who have been asked to teach by various people, including people who are monks and nuns or who were monks and nuns, does that mean we are somehow lineaged because someone asked us to teach? And then who's allowed to do that? This all gets very, very complicated and political. And the practical implications of this are actually also complicated to sort out. So is it crucial that people have the social designations or the rituals or the official certifications? Or, um, or is it just important that people have good wisdom to share? And these are complicated topics. And then what's and then some people's question of like authenticity, it's very important to them that they have a sense of what is authentic, truly authentic, truly connected, truly certified. And then there are other people who could care less, and it's really just a question of what helps end suffering, right? And then so you have competing priorities and competing aesthetics. And I'm just going to stop there because that was a lot. Sorry. Sure. No, that was great. And there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of things you said there that uh, I have questions about. And, um, you know, even as to, to, you know, where you Vince and, and, and where you Daniel stand on some of those subjects. So, um, I guess in the sense of lineage, right, there's some like Dharma transmission. Um, and I don't, I, you know, again, and with the, the 21st century Dharma kind of theme is, um, you know, are there even Dharma heirs anymore? Like these days, how does that even work? Like, yeah, is there, and of whom? Right. That's right. another question. Yeah. Right. So, so Daniel, um, your, your 
yeah, I mean, where where would you plot your your, your Dharma lineage, or do you, how would you say <laughs> that or qualify? That? You know what I mean? Like from coming from you, how do you understand it? So this is really complicated. So um, the first thing is the thing I personally, from my own aesthetics, consider to be most important is the, the meditative experiences that convey some direct appreciation of something that other people can recognize about sense their own sensate reality that reduces suffering. Right. So that's that's a critical thing, regardless of what you call it. If you call it path attainments or boomies or you know kensho or satori or whatever you call it, fancy words, you call these things that there is some experience. So actually in my own life, I care about the experiences more, but it's not that the social aspects aren't important. They can be very important. Um, but so, you know, in, in the nineties, I started, well, actually there's a Buddhist text somewhere that says anybody above the arising and passing away actually would have the minimum requirements of a teacher, which is a stage I crossed into when I was a teenager. It would be, have been ridiculous for me to teach when I was a teenager who had no idea what this experience was and just found it confusing um, to have taught at that point. Uh, that would have been absurd from my point of view, but who knows. Um, but So the minimum requirements are actually something that I know people who were young kids when this stuff happened to them. And they should be able to teach. I don't know. And then there's another tradition I spend a lot of time in where they like people to be, you know, sort of certified a second path. That's the Mahasi tradition before they would allow them to generally teach, which is a somewhat moderately sophisticated, you know, sort of mid grade awakening from a sort of a Theravada and Buddhist point of view. But then problems like there are all kinds of problems like how does this relate to? I know people who have woken up in what I think of as a very old school technical sense who never even meditated and are not even a part of any tradition. Right. And so then what do you do with those people? These are just questions I am that are being raised by this. If they have valid experience that they can, from their own experience, talk about aspects of reality they can point to that will help others reduce their suffering, then you know, what do you what do you do with them from a formal lineage point of view? And we get into these tensions between the sort of controlling orthodox hierarchies and the people who may just have seen something very important and transformative about their experience. And even the question of transmission is a funny one, like of people who have transmitted to me, like uh, if I started going through that list of people, I felt like I got some kind of download from, it's an absurdly large list of like, they shared some wisdom with me that impacted me in a positive way that I can then hopefully help to try to explain to someone else right? That list is absurdly long and it's all kinds of people like going back to like teachers in grade school that helped me reduce suffering and p- parents and like all of the people that help. If, if the project is about reducing suffering, increasing wisdom, and that's really should be the metric, right? For, you know, for noble truths and that kind of stuff, then the list of people who transmitted me is absurd, right? Absurdly large. And, and so, and then, do, so, or do I like just single out a few people who kind of artificially, like I think of myself as being in the lineage of Bill Hamilton, it would be absurd for me to say that I wasn't from some point of view. And yet Bill Hamilton never really during his lifetime thought I had a level of realization that would be worthy of that. And so, and yet Kenneth Folk, who very much feels he's in the lineage of Bill Hamilton thinks I do. And so what is, you get into these very weird things, right? Of of what does this mean? Or like another strange one. So for example, Christopher Titmus. I was having a walk with him at Gaia House 22 years ago now, summer of 1999, I think. And I I said, you know, who who do you consider a lineage Dharma teacher? And he said, a lineage Dharma teacher is someone who has been asked to teach retreats solo. 
well, that's an interesting criteria. That's a, it wasn't the answer I was expecting at all. And so I've been asked to teach you know, meditation retreats by various people and have. Does that make me a lineage teacher? Well, I also know people who have been asked to teach retreats who you know, do they have that much wisdom to share from an old school technical awakening point of view? I don't know, maybe not, but like, so, so again, these criteria get very weird. And then you get into the sort of the weird thing of like Sada Upandita Jr. When I, I told him on retreat after I'd been on retreat with him for some weeks that I was thinking of teaching again, that I had barely really taught for six years while I was trying to figure out my own practice and get it up to my own standards. And, and he just said, good. But the thing is, that's not like a formal lineage transmission, even though it was an acknowledgement you know, at the moment that perhaps I should teach, but it's the kind of thing that he probably doesn't even remember as I was one dude on retreat with him 22 years ago who he's never seen since and had no further contact since. Is that lineage? This gets really complicated, right? And then I have had other people from other lineages say, no, you're definitely in our lineage just because of what you can do and know. So, in, for example, someone from a Western magical order said, you're definitely a member of certain lineage just because of what you're understood, even if you've never, never studied in our tradition and had never even heard of it, because our tradition, in theory, encompasses anybody who would have that level of technical attainment. So, yeah. like, you know, so these are the, the, the curious ambiguities of the path. I'm just going to kind of stop there. <laughs> Vince, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just I'm thinking about like some kind of meta frameworks um, that I'm I'm kind of employing to make sense of a lot of the different stuff that you're throwing out there. And you know, like to me, there's almost two sides to what we're talking about. We're kind of talking about like the kinds of lineage, and then we're talking about who decides um, who's in and who's out, and how you're in and how you're out. Um, and to me, like the the kinds of lineage we've kind of circled around, like there's here I use, um, I'll use like a, a model from, from one of my other mentors, uh, Ken Wilbur, you know, he, he talks about the first, second and third person perspectives as like key perspectives that you have to include if you want to like take account of a lot of different ways of seeing. And, and for him, like the first person perspective on lineage is realization. You know, it's like the actual realization that you have. And I think Daniel, you're speaking to that as like, that's one of your primary focuses really. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how I've always experienced you as well. That change of lineage moment is kind of like, I remember you telling me about that and talking about that, how that in a way could be seen as, as the, the first person lineage, like your own experience of entering the lineage. Um, and if you have that, regardless of, of who's tapped you shoulder or whatever, what you've read, like that's sufficient from that point of view. But then there's the second person uh, perspective on lineage, which is like more the cultural or social aspect of like the relationships and that's i think where the family dynamics come into play and it gets kind of messy and and there's also for me a lot of love and a lot of like there's the good the good side of the messiness as well in there um the deep relationships and you know like the the moments on the path that really fucking matter like when i was melting down from a mushroom trip and i could call up daniel and be like hey man i'm melting down and i'm getting ready to host a conference in like three days can you please help <laughs> thank you <laughs> true story <laughs> um so there's that and then there's to me there's the institutional lineage which is the third person perspective and it's like looking at like this almost like the systems view and i remember um you know, it's like people inherit lineages sometimes because they're really good at like managing organizations and they're really good at like raising money and like bringing the, you know, the voice of the original teacher to a broader audience. And so they get, you know, that's honored as part of what lineage is as well by most 
um, by most living lineages, I think. Otherwise, they probably are dead if they don't focus on the institutional side of things. Uh, and then to me, there's the question of who decides, you know, how, who decides who's in the lineage. And I know traditionally, it's almost always a top-down decision, like someone in a position of authority determines if you're in the lineage or not. But that doesn't really fit the re realization perspective of lineage. Um, you'd have to like confirm someone's realization. Okay, that then now you're in because I've confirmed it. Um, but to me, that's cultural lineage, not the first person experience. So um, that's, I know, traditionally speaking, how you usually is decided. But I remember, you know, Daniel, you're speaking to kind of the the peer to peer, you know, kind of attitude of the Dharma overground of like, hey, we're in this together on some fundamental level, we're equals, even if we have different levels of skill and different depth of realization. Um, so to me, there's also like peers can decide if you're in a lineage or not, you know, like that's actually true. You have, if you hang out with enough people who are lineage holders and like, hey, we see eye to eye. It's like, well, so because the person in your family tree didn't give you the tap on the shoulder, does that mean you're not actually equals with these people? Like, no, by any like reasonable definition, if someone who's really skilled and competent considers you an equal, you're an equal. You know, um, and then there's another part of this, which is like the bottom up decision. And I remember talking to Hokai, our old friend Hokai, about this uh, a number of years ago. And he said, he asked me, like, who makes a teacher? You know, is it the teacher's teacher that makes them a teacher? Is it their, you know, is it their peers or is it their students? Um, and and he's in his perspective at the time was it's like, it's actually your students that make the most difference. <laughs> like if no one comes up to you and asks you for anything or asks you to teach. And you're like, you've got a sign on the door, you've got a, you know, you've got your enlightenment scroll or whatever, and no one shows <laughs> up. Like, are you really a teacher? Um, and likewise, if you don't have that scroll and people, a bunch of people show up and they found what you're sharing helpful and it, it makes a difference for them, you know, like, is that person a teacher? Yeah, I think they are a teacher, you know, by, by my understanding of what lineage is. So um, to me, those are kind of two things that have to be looked at who decides and like what and what are the different kinds of lineage. Um, so in, in the ways that really matter, I, I do consider you, Daniel, to be a lineage teacher in the sense that like, I found your work helpful. I came and sought out your advice. It was helpful and other people have also found it helpful. So I, it continues to be helpful for others. So to me, it's like, yeah, that's obviously, um, someone who has demonstrated real world wisdom. And so to me, yeah, that's a lineage holder. Well, well then, you. uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a question from there would be, say, say Daniel is, I guess, a lineage holder, you know, um, is, does that lineage end with him or, or, is, or, or his students carry that on? How does that work? Especially in the 21st century. <laughs> it was, right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm an outsider, so I'm on the outside looking at this thing and I'm saying, okay, so wait, is, is, is there in the 21st century, I, I mean, at least from my point of view, I see less and less like Dharma transmissions as, okay, this person is this person's student. So they are now teaching this or they just kind of go on and do their own thing. Like are, in the 21st century, are there still Dharma heirs or is it, is the, at least in the Western world, um, is, 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 uh, you know, the Dharma teachings or, you know, awakening teachings, however you want to call it changing. 
Some big questions, James. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's why I got. That's why I have two experts on right here. You got Vince, Vince, and Daniel. You guys. We're, we're trying experts. to establish where our expertise comes from. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I think I think in well, I mean, the Dharma is huge, right? And so, in traditional countries, I think you're still, you know, and which generally means, uh, you know, Eastern, then and Asian particularly, you still got all the traditional lineage stuff, which is going on and will go on, and will probably yeah. go on for centuries if we can avoid destroying the planet, right? So, and maybe millennia, because it seems to be unusually robust to wars, to changes, to complexities, to different governments, the system of the way lineage works. And, you know, and that's actually, there are vastly more people in that system in terms of monks and nuns than there are in the West. So like in terms of just on from a planetary point of view, my guess is that continues and that continues based on all the things it's been based on. And this varies by the country. Sometimes it's by family, sometimes it's by ordination, sometimes it's by institution. And I think those are all alive and well and will be. Um, and I think in the West, loosely speaking, although there's cross-pollination, right? The geographical boundaries are not hard on this by any means. But um, obviously, it's an incredibly new experiment with a large degree of transformation and figuring itself out and very much in flux. I would be astounded if, if in 50 to 100 years, it looked a tremendous amount like it does today, because I think it's still very much figuring itself out. This is, again, ignoring planetary threats and existential crisis, right? This is assuming planetary stability for those kinds of conversations, which is probably not true. But anyway, so... Um, and so I think in, in the West, it's very hard to say even what it is because there's so many now different strains and vibes and things going on, right? So you have, from a certain point of view, there may have been never been more lay teachers that have been created than, say, out of the Spirit Rock teacher training program, which is just massive, or you know, assistant teachers out of the Goenka tradition, or you know, and these various models. And then, but there's this complicated question of how did those large numbers of te lay teachers that are being created relate to the traditional systems, right? So if you're a certified teacher or training person from someone who used to be a monk, but you're not trained in a traditional thing, but yet you are trained by one of the major Western insight meditation centers, where does that fit you in the sort of grander historical context? This is really complicated. Right, Vince actually having been through that would probably be vastly more qualified to, to speculate on that and to talk about what it means and what it doesn't and and how that will look going forward, right? And and the emphases in these traditions have really been in the creation of large numbers of people with extremely high degrees of sort of psychological and cultural sensitivity rather than necessarily on realization. But those from a certain point of view may be incredibly helpful for our society because we obviously have a profound need for. Um, basic meditation stuff to meet a lot of people where they are in their psychological and sociocultural and trauma needs, right? Which are very real as you run into again and again. So creating those kinds of um, teachers en masse, you know, may be incredibly skillful. Um, Vince, I'm just going to stop there. Vince, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, a couple. I mean, one is that it's 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 very hard for me being having one foot in the insight meditation tradition world. Um, to see is insight meditation 
um, its own form? Is it a, a Western form of Dharma or is it just a transitory form that was eventually leading to mindfulness? Because right now there's a lot of like very blurry overlap between those worlds and mm -hmm. how people are teaching that have trained in, in the insight meditation world. And I think that's interesting um, because if you take something like Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock's mindfulness meditation teacher certification training, which now has had thousands of people go through it, um, a magnitude of order more than they had trained in the previous insight meditation tradition, then you see something like the yogification of dharma or mindfulness, um, depending on how you understand those terms. When you say yogification, is that worth uh, defining? Yeah, so that would be like what happened in the yoga world a few decades ago as as like the teacher training industry exploded and you know, and you had probably a lot of traditional practitioners of yoga who'd spent time in India going, oh my God, I can't believe what they're doing to the tradition, just watering it down. And and yet, you know, here we are, like there's a yoga center on every block. Um, and, you know, um, you know, how many people do you know that are yoga teachers? Like personally, there, I mean, I know so many. <laughs> um, I think most people know at least one uh, person who's done yoga teaching some kind. So, I think that seems to be where we're heading with mindfulness. And yet I'm not sure the mindfulness world is clear on its, uh, some parts of the mindfulness world aren't clear themselves on whether they're teaching Dharma or they're teaching some kind of secular, uh, yeah. you know, pro modern friendly version of meditation. And I, I don't think that's clear at all if you actually go into mindfulness teaching contexts and hear what people are saying, because they're using often poly words and they're just, I mean, in some ways, they're more traditional Dharma teachers than I am. And yet they're <laughs> secular mindfulness teachers, or yeah. at least that they're operating under that banner. So to me, that there's, there's the mindfulness question as well, um, and how that relates to Dharma, that it's like hard to avoid with these things. Uh, and, and the insight teachers have done more than most lineages, I think, to try to adapt a lot of the stuff they were handed into Western culture. So that's probably in part why it led to the to the mindfulness movement but um yeah i don't know i don't have good answers yeah to that to that question well then uh, you know um for vince i want to ask you you know you uh, you did you did the the jack cornfield and spirit rock training and and all okay. that okay okay now so, we're now we're going to get in the now we're going to get into the politics because i didn't actually oh. uh i received a uh I was part of a lineage uh, authorization ceremony, public one with Jack and Trudy. Um, but in the years prior to that, I had been invited along with my wife, Emily, to, to attend a four-year retreat teacher training, which is kind of the highest training that they do in that system. And um, I filled out my application. I shared with them my background and my influences, including Daniel and Kenneth and Bill and uh, and my, and, and so my understanding was this was an application just to kind of formalize things like, like almost no one was going to be rejected or if anyone, and yeah. yet I, uh, Jack got back to me and said, sorry, they didn't like that. You were connected to Daniel. Wow. And I'm sharing this now publicly for the first time. Like this is stuff that I've been sitting on for a decade. And I, and, and, and I thought it was so absurd just on yeah. the surface of things. And so counter to the kind of 
just the principles and practices of Dharma. I was very naive at that time too, I'll say. Yeah. Um, and, and I was very, I was, I was torn apart by that. And I went back to Trudy and Jack and I was like, what in the fuck is this about? And Tr Trudy actually uh, fought for me. And she said, Jack, you need to go back them there and tell them that that's, this is wrong. You know, and he did. And then they invited me actually into the teacher training. And I said, fuck you. <laughs> no. Yeah. <Wow. laughs> so, yeah. Um, because I, you know, because of, of the, the, how things went down. So Emily ended up doing this teacher training and I did not. And I decided like uh, what I had, what I knew was sufficient. I felt confident to be able to teach without that. Um, but yeah, it was very, it was a very painful introduction to the politics that happened behind the scenes in these worlds. And like, if you're associated with someone that isn't orthodox, like that actually can keep you from being part of the orthodox. And it's, uh, it's incredible how myopic in some ways, I think Dharma people can be to the institutional politics that are at play in these things. Like they just, I don't know that we, we just are so focused maybe on our own subjective phenomena <laughs> that we don't maybe clue in as much to like the reality of the world and these things. But uh, yeah, it was a real wake up call to me that like, what's going on here is not just about realization about what you have to offer. It's, it's, it's also about who, you know, and if, if you have, if you, if you know the right kinds of people. And, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, unfortunately I'm not part, part of that lineage in that way. Like I got grandparented in by Trudy and Jack. Yeah. Know? Wow. So, yeah. Dang. I didn't know that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, yeah, it's not surprising, but it's still like, uh, heavy yeah but yeah, yeah what can you do it's sad. yeah it's interesting as sort of similar thing with the well it's not quite like that but the western uh, it was just at the international western dharma teachers gathering some weeks ago and there was the the gen x dharma teachers group and they had a, a a discussion and it was an open forum and discussion and i raised the question of like hey you know um i was rejected from a previous application some years ago to to go to your your conference because they didn't consider me a Gen X Dharma teacher, which is very interesting. And I was like, okay. And it's because of the ambiguities of things related to lineage around me. And so I, I put it back to them and I said, well, hey, you know, is this, you know, I, I, you know, as a group, you're allowed to have your criteria be whatever they want, obviously, you know, have tremendous respect for people wanting to set whatever standards they care about. But do you understand the implications of doing that? And so it's interesting. They they got back to me and they they added some more standards that actually make me even less one. So and now I I don't meet their criteria on two counts, which was one that I don't spend the majority of my workday teaching Dharma. I spend the majority of my workday running a charity and do maybe ten to fifteen hours a week of stuff that might be considered Dharma teaching in some context. But it's not the majority. The majority of probably thirty five hours or 40 hours is running a charity, which is designed to internationally upgrade the experience of people going through what I would consider Dharma or meditation or spiritual or whatever experiences in the clinical mainstream, but it's not Dharma teaching. So now, curiously enough, after I got back to them, they revised their criteria to exclude me on two counts rather than one. But one of the most interesting um, <laughs> things about that was they also have a, a criteria in there that is responsible to, you know, you're you're responsible to someone else, meaning that there's someone else who is giving you oversight, which is one of the other important criteria, right? Because I think there are teachers without oversight that there's no whatever, and then they can get into trouble and no one's paying attention and can do anything about it. And we hear these stories again and again. 
But it's interesting. I was actually thinking like, who am I responsible to? Like the Dharma Overground community gives me all kinds of flack sometimes for stuff I do. Like there's plenty of criticism and I, I feel in some ways responsible to this, you know, now almost 10,000 person community. Not that there are that many active at any time, but I think we have about 10,000 members and have been for 13 years. And then like there's my whole peer group that, you know, I'm intimately involved with as, you know, um, sometimes daily and weekly basis of people such as yourself, Vince, and you, James, and all kinds of people who are just, you know, we're paying attention to what everybody's doing, what they're putting out there and what happens with them. And there is responsibility. And I was, and then there's like the law, like, so we're all responsible to the court systems and the law, right? And I was trying to, I was thinking through this and is there, could there actually be anybody who was responsible to no one? And what were you, would you actually have to exist mm. like in this day and age where the world of social media or the world of something wasn't going to come down upon your head if you screwed <laughs> up or they perceived you screwing up? Like you'd have to be living under a rock in a cave, like in, in a, you know, in Antarctica, which even still has legal jurisdiction on it or something, you know, so like maybe out in the open waters, but even there, there's international law and thinking like, who is truly responsible to nobody? Like, it's a funny criteria to think about anyway. It's just, yeah. 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 That's, that's pretty interesting. I mean, um, I do, I do want to shift gears though a little hmm. bit and getting into the lineage aspect of Bill Hamilton. Um, because I knew he was, Bill himself, uh, was was training with Upandita. Yeah, right? for years. The Mahasi lineage. So um, I think, Daniel, maybe you have the greatest insight into this about, say, let's talk about Bill Hamilton and, and his lineage. He had like no his, formal like institutional lineage transmission. Okay. So from a third person point of view, he did not have that, which is wild because he's one of the most badass practitioners I'd ever met. And with a profound and deep, you know, decades of incredible dedication to Dharma practice and learning and incredible teaching. So, but he didn't have third person, third, you know, like, yeah, third person lineage institutional recognition. He obviously had second person you know, lineage because he taught some people, but it was actually a, a strangely small number. Although from a certain point of view, from his work with the Dharma Seed Tape Library, like this is another interesting thing to promote the Dharma. If, if one is a teacher is one who promotes the Dharma, like then even Vince, like if you weren't another kind of Dharma teacher, Buddhist geeks, like for example, does tremendous Dharma promotion. Right, mm. it's sort of this collective promotion of a staggering amount of wisdom and and, and other people. Like, so are the is is to you know to teach dharma to promote the dharma, and does that have to be even you saying it? Is the you know like mm. you know so like Bill's work through the Dharma Seed Tape Library eventually yeah. created this platform where there's thousands and thousands of teachings by teachers that he put out there. Like, is that dharma teaching? Well, from a right. certain point of view, functionally, of course it is. Right. And the promotion of wisdom that hopefully reduces suffering. And so he did that. So, second person, he had it. And first person, I have no doubt that he had profound levels of realization and, you know, died an Arahant or whatever. You know, some people would freak out about that designation, how exactly how it was used and who's designated and want to fight about those terms and get all petty and political about it. Or, you know, maybe a very important, I don't know. So, but um, then, you know, like he definitely had that from my point of view. But he never got the institutional recognition, which is a weird one, right? And because he never had the political skills, he wasn't willing to play the games. He was too outspoken, and he just didn't have the social skills, 
right? And, and he was also training with monks that at the time, no, a lineage teacher is a monk mm-hmm. or a nun, really, but mostly monks, right? Let's be realistic. So, and so uh, then, you know, and since he wasn't one, then he would never be able to have the formal lineage status. And there is this sort of still kind of important institutional mystique or power about the notion of formal ordination, right? Which has this, this uh, mythic resonant quality. So yeah, but he, he, but then looking at it from another point of view, like, you know, Ram Das was taught by him as, and he taught Ram Das, like they helped each other out on the path as kind of Dharma brothers or whatever. And so like the people who taught, you know, Ram Das, was he getting teachings from them from his teachers, right? So he is he in their lineage? And he, ta- he studied with all kinds of other complicated figures and gurus, and he studied, you know, Chogyam Trungpa and all this stuff, like, is he in their lineage? Well, from a certain point of view, of course he is, right? Because he's, he synthesized their wisdom and was able to retransmit it in a way that was effective for some people. So of course he's in their lineage and the lineage of all the interesting people he wandered around and studied with. Uh, of course, it'd be absurd to say not, and yet institutionally, definitely not, right? So he is he in a Vedanta lineage? Is he in a Tantric lineage? Is he in a Mahayana lineage? Is he in a Theravada lineage? Well, I think of course, and multiple ones, and then other people. But you know, and then there's really reality is what teaches us all, right? Sort of the mm-hmm. Earth witness point of view, right? So it's reality. It's our sensate experience. It's this world that teaches us, right? Is the greatest teacher. We learn not from just from theory, but from also the experience of this, that kind of earth witness, putting your hand on the ground, saying, I, you know, have the right to claim this level of understanding and to, you know, that we're all in the lineage of just experiential reality, because that's mm-hmm. really what's showing us, right? And and to deny that would seem to 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 not consider that as the primary thing would seem absurd to me <laughs> from most points of view. Um yeah, for sure. And I understand that. Uh, especially because um, not not in all uh, like yoga teachings, but some of them will say the the only true guru is is the, you know the ultimate reality sure. unveiling itself to you. Right, of course. So that is that that is the ultimate teacher. Um, but uh, yeah, and and also you know Bill Hamilton was was very influential on um, Shinzen Young. Yeah. And Shinzen has said, you know, like a stuff he teaches, he's taught over the years and that he put into uh, his, his uh, unified mindfulness teaching program, you know, all, some stuff is influenced by Bill Hamilton. You know, and Shinzen so also influenced Bill. So is, is Bill in yeah. a Shingon lineage, a Zen lineage, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah. And it's, but um what other did so so bill hamilton he also he studied with other people other than Pandita and oh yeah in, yeah so i uh, yeah i guess and yeah you know i really wish again you know bill was gonna possibly write those several books on um on his his dharma teachings i wonder what would have came out in there that may have not been totally mahasi um well, like, yeah, like, so, I mean, I guess we can um, extrapolate a little in, in the sense where you, you wrote uh, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, and some of your influence was from, from Bill Hamilton. Oh, yeah. And so a was, lot. yeah. And so some, some of your influence from 
Bill Hamilton is, right? Some of it you can point to it and say, well, that's not really Theravada nor Mahasi um, in, in that way. Right. So this is another question. Sorry, I'm taking up a lot of bandwidth here, right? Every single lineage that today basically that exists today basically is some reform or deviation from something that came before. And even the attempts to go back and reconstruct what was truly the earliest Buddhist Sangha, you're going to run into the, the fact that there was endless debate about even what that was, and there was at the time. And even all of those people were coming from subtly different influences or different teachers, right? So the Buddha studied with a bunch of teachers before him who taught him all kinds of jhanic stuff and renunciate practices and, and all kinds of things, right? And then a lot of the wandering aesthetics that woke up under the Buddha also had studied from other teachers, which clearly contributed to their found their awakening and their realization and their understanding and the way they taught. So even at the time, there was tremendous controversy and discussion and debate. It was always this robustly debated thing. And even the Theravada, I think there was like 13 or so major lineages of it, of which only, you know, or, the, you know, the early stuff, like only really one, I guess the Theravada sort of a ver version of it or variant of it has survived, but there were a bunch of others. And so, and everybody today, like Thai forest Buddhism versus everybody's a variant from something. So as you go back down the sort of evolutionary tree and try to trace back to like the single source, you actually can't find it. What you find is more tree. What you find is more roots and branches. And so like to, to, this sort of business of like invalidating other lineages and forms of transmission of the Dharma, as soon as you start that game, you would literally have to cut off the whole tree. Right. Because like, A, you can't find a single perfect source, period. I'm sorry. Like, I don't mean to contradict all the textual scholars who are trying. I appreciate their attempts. It's it's a fascinating business to see what's, what's the, you know, paying the ta tail on the oldest sutta, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it's a fun game to play as you wander around blind with a stick or whatever, um, or something as pinatas. Never mind. Um, and so, uh, but like, you know, every lineage that exists, all of the Mahayana lineages, they're all some sort of reform or variant. And so at the time, they all received pushback and then eventually were accepted as something. So there's also this kind of generational temporal morphing component where in our own era, things that today are probably considered very controversial may be institutional at some point, and then there will be reform against them. You know, it's almost, you know, and so that's just the natural cycle of, of orthodoxies. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of one of the ideas that I was talking about, the 21st century Dharma. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, yeah, exactly your point and, you know, trying to trace it back. I, I see a lot of teaching in the West where there's, there's no more, like, I don't want to name any names, but so if there was, you know, um, or here's an example, because I'm not down talking anybody, but say Joseph Goldstein, right, is teaching at IMS. And now is he teaching, is he transmitting the Dharma for other people to, to continue that lineage? And is that the IMS lineage or is it the Mahasi lineage or, right? Um, and right, I, I, even I, though he's ordained and, or you know, authorized to teach by Upandita, I think is the person that gave him, said you can teach. And I think he's got some others as well. I don't know. Um, I, I can't, did, Trungpa, did Trungpa say as well? I don't can't know. remember. Yeah. So, but I, I think actually he may have, he may have a few, I'm not sure of the social designations, but um, yeah, it is also true that what is being taught at IMS is an amalgam of their best attempt to synthesize what works for their audience and the people coming to them and what they feel is 
the safest and best and most effective, right? Um, and so, and they're trying to optimize for their own vision of what they feel is the right dharma for for that setting and, and that audience. And of course, it looks really, in some ways, it's got some traditional Mahasi elements, but in other ways, it's very, very different than a fusion of a lot of things. And so does that invalidate the lineage if you don't do exactly what the people before you did? Is that the same lineage? Right? These are these, you know, again, it's it's so organic as this organic moving thing, right? And it always has been. That's the thing. It's this has never been fixed. If you read the history of, say, Tibetan Buddhism or Zen, it's this endless sort of debates and conversation. And I think it's only by being an alive, robust, moving, morphing thing that is constantly mm. grappling with new social forces, contexts, languages, culturals, you know, cultural settings and all of that, that you can have something that is really robust and, and works you know, with hopefully some sense of what are the essential elements, realizing that is clearly up for debate, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and so Vince, you're, you know, you have um, experienced, you know, I guess working with Daniel and and with Jack Cornfield um, a little bit. So yeah, I mean, I guess I don't see how how that works now. Yeah, with the, uh, the Dharma the Dharma lineage thing. I think it's, I don't know, especially having, having this conversation, it seems like it's almost um, like an idea or formality of sorts. It's a very person thing, I, you mm. know, considering the, the, in the grand scheme of things where, you know, as the Dharma, as the Dharma, you know, um, again, like what are you, you're saying, Daniel, eliminating suffering and, you know, the, the fundamentals of it, you know, versus the, the personal aspects of it. Um, so, you know, Vince, what do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really appreciative, Daniel, for you framing this in terms of evolution. Um, because I think that's a much better frame to understand lineage than, than what seems like it's almost like, a like a lot of lineage is like trying to reify some conceptual kind of view of what, like a snapshot of how things are and in the moment and what like you said that the the evolutionary or evolving the organic aspect of this is like you can't you can do that but then it's like how and then two months later it's out of date you know the snapshot's out of date it's like how do you actually have a view or a, a kind of a, a symbolic representation of what's actually happening i think that's the challenge of lineage in some ways is like we were very bad at coming up with models that accurately reflect what's what's happening in the world we try and we're not even doing it in a very scientific way with with buddhist lineage so it's just like you know a lot of it is power i think power play stuff yeah um, yeah unfortunately um but yeah the, the evolutionary view of like looking at these different things as variants you know as, as buddhism as this tradition of adaptation which is kind of the story it has about itself especially in the modern Buddhism. It's like Buddhism is a thing that adapts to every place it goes. You know, that's one of its characteristics um, until it's your lineage. And then it's like, it stops right there. <laughs> well, actually, um, and then, you know, just, just one last point here, the, the, re, the part of evolution to me that I've learned about is like recombination. You know, that's one of the key elements. And for, for me, I trained with Daniel and Kenneth and I got this sort of particular flavor of Dharma it, it was even between the two of them very different, you know, like, but oh, then yeah. working with Jack and Trudy is like, oh, this is another flavor. And to me, it was like actually being trying to sincerely work with both views of what Dharma was, 
actually had the impact in my own experience of a, of a kind of synthesis, I think, in, in how I understood things and now how I teach things. So that recombination, it's like divergence is great for evolution in terms of like if you can actually recombine elements in ways that work uh, and it and it and it meets uh, you know and, and it gives you an advantage for being like for filling a niche you know there's some there's somewhere in the ecology of things that this works and people you know are find this valuable then it's going to prosper and it's going to work uh, and to me it's like part of why the insight tradition in a way um i think it's at a phase maybe of its own development where there's a lot of homogeneity, you know, within the cultures, within these cultures. I think that's changing. But when I was there, for sure, there was like this kind of cultural homogeneity. I think that's why Bill wasn't part of the crew because he was so different. Uh, he was like this eccentric dude, this Dharma dude. And he just didn't fit the the mold of like what an insight meditation teacher was at the time, which is a pretty narrow mold. It was like, this is what it has to look like. This is how you have to kind of behave. This is how you look. That, I think that has changed. Um, like they, there has been some reckoning within that community about the homogeneity of, it, of itself. But um, yeah, to me, it's like that recombination and that natural evolution is, is a better way of looking at lineage than, um, you know, than like, who, you know, looking at like the, uh, like what do they have in, in big companies? They've got like the org charts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like here's yeah. the org charts. Like good luck keeping the org chart up to date. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say it's, it's part of the, the lineage in a sense, like a set of techniques and philosophy. Uh, where does that come into the equation? Well, that's really complicated actually. So like even within like, things that would seem very similar, like variants of Dzogchen, right? There's going to be subtleties or, you know, Yogachara, you know, Yogachara philosophy, you know, Mahamudra, these, these debates about like the subtlest layers of what is, like subtle questions of ontology that seem so abstract and esoteric have split entire traditions, even if they looked incredibly similar in nearly everything, you know? And so there's something called the narcissism of small differences, which is apparently a religious scholarship thing where like I've mentioned Belgium and Holland saying we're so different and maybe they really are. I don't know. But like a lot of the world looks at them and ah, you're kind of similar, but you know, I don't know. Sorry for people in Belgium <laughs> and Holland who are quite sure you're very different. Maybe you are I could, I'm in to totally ignorant here, but you see what I mean? Like, you know, or the Baptist convention of 1860, whatever versus 1870 or something, you know, the, to the rest of the world, they all look incredibly similar, but these these nuances of distinction, no, it's, it's this thing and this subtle point of doctrine isn't critical. And it's interesting how these things can become, become so important. And maybe they are. I don't mean to you know, say that subtle points of dharma and dogma and things might not be credibly important for some people. They might be critical sometimes. But it's also the kind of thing where it's pretty much guaranteed as the, the voice gets transmitted to new humans, just like the telephone game, that things will change. That's just going to happen. So if you look at the Thai forest tradition, they, these people all look really, really different, like, you know, Achan Mun versus Buddha Dasa or whatever. They look really, really different. And yet we sort of lump them all together as Thai forest, right? Even though like, you know, very, you know, and, you know, even Burmese, we say, oh, Burmese Buddhism, but like, you know, uh, um, you know, Goenka stuff versus, you know, Mahasi stuff versus Pa'ok stuff. They look really, really different in a lot of ways, right? You know, so, um, you know, Uba Kin and even Uba Kin, right? He taught all these people. They end up looking really different in some ways because he kind of mm. taught them all different things because they were all different people and needed stuff, right? And so 
it's just, it, and so this, this constant branching, the instant you transmit to someone else is the dynamic force that is, as you very well put it, is sort of in an ecological system, then sort of like, you know, being, going in this dynamic tension between div diversifying and then reconvergence and diversifying and reconvergence. And that's just the nature of this thing. But even when it reconverges, it may reconverge in totally different ways and combinations. It's kind of like viruses, you know, like the influenza virus with all these little parts of it that recombine and form something else that may be more or less contagious. I think the Dharma, hopefully in a beneficial way, usually <laughs> does the same thing, but not always. So I think you can also find evidence that sort of what I would consider somewhat pathological or not very helpful memes can also sometimes be propagated in that package just because mm. people want to preserve a package because they have it gives them some sense of certainty and stability and control in an uncertain world full of change and suffering right and so i think even the the funny thing about the dharma is its own attempts at being a solid continuous permanent thing you know are antithetical to its own core teachings as fascinating concepts there anyway so and i think to attempts to often to solidify the dharma have re resulted in staggering amounts of suffering as we see with basically all the religions and yet there's another part of me that cannot help but appreciate the dedication to preserving something beautiful and pure and true because i also have those parts of me that mythically love that kind of thing as well. And we're all stuck in this world where there's no way both those parts can be happy, right? It's, yeah. it, you know, except at the rarest moments when whatever the mainstream or your current strain happens to converge to what you consider to be pure and true and perfect Dharma or meditation stuff in general, right? And that usually isn't what's going on. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, so Vince, how do you see um, this, the, I guess, lineage or 21st century dharma continuing i mean you you and uh daniel you know you have the dharma overground and then you know buddhist geeks is really in a way an evolution of the dharma in a sense of a, a different way of it going out um mm -hmm. and i guess yeah how do you how do you see all that compared to i guess you know where in the east it's more um contained within in the lineages that way but in, in the west it's almost the opposite where it's just being kind of put out there right there there's less and less uh dharma lineage in a, in a sense in in the way that it's uh you know going out and you know anybody on the internet can just just go on and find uh you know joe or me or anybody can just go on and look up mastering the core teachings of the buddha or mahasi mm -hmm. i can i can go find the progress of insight on right. the internet so right. how did yeah how do you see the, the lineage transmission or or you know dharma in that sense then yeah i've come i've kind of come around on this i guess in recent years uh, come around on dharma itself um where to me there's something incredibly valuable about the sort of original frame of this like three these three trainings you know, and daniel dedicates a lot of his book to describing them in terms of concentration insight and morality not in that order morality is the first training and yeah. the last one as you say daniel um but to me there's something about that package which probably isn't even buddhist itself that was probably a yogic you know an indian yogic model that predated buddhism i imagine but still there's something about that particular coming together 
uh, and, and Trungpa used a slightly different translation of, of the three trainings. He said, you know, it's like you're training in ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So a slightly different interpretation or translation, but has a, a little bit of a different impact for me. Um, to me, the, it's, it's, it's useful to recognize that part of what modernity has been, this movement of modernity has been in a way like an, a, meditation has become unbundled from the orig original package of Dharma of like these three trainings. You know, the insight meditation tradition did a great job of that. And even the, the Burmese were before that were, were kind of doing that, as, as Daniel, you pointed out earlier, they were doing that in a way to, to fight against British colonialism. Um, you know, they were like kind of making these teachings like widely, more widely accessible and inviting like lay people to memorize the Abhidhamma and things that had never happened before. Like monks were meditating all of a sudden, you know, to protect the tradition from the, you know, the encroaching uh, colonialists. To, to me, like that emphasis on meditation as being something that's unique uh, in in the in the broader, you know, place of human knowledge, and that becoming emphasized uh, above and beyond, you know, the 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 ethics and the awakening that the tradition offered. Like that's that's been happening, and it's like, and it's found its extreme version in mindfulness, where mindfulness in ways like even unbundled from meditation. You know, it's like, oh, there's this thing you can do. You don't even have to, it's not about meditation per se. Like meditation is a way of developing mindfulness. You could, but mindfulness is like, it's not owned by the traditions either. And to me that, that, that unbundling has been exactly what's made mindfulness so popular and will make it so huge. Um, because it's like, you've taken this like little core bit of tech, like psychotechnology, extracted it out of the tradition. And then sort of now you can like take this thing of like, being aware of something, <laughs> you know, it's like okay, I'm a, I'm a, I'm mindful of this, and I, like, what can you apply that to? Well, you can apply that to anything, you know, and so and it does get applied to everything. Um, so 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 I think that's one thing that I think about with with the 21st century Dharma is like part of 21st century Dharma is this unbundling of like its innards have come out and have become part of this great rebundling of all these human all this human knowledge that used to just be contained within, you know, within these packages that were held often in like monasteries. And then they got unbundled and suddenly it's like, Oh no, like the monastery isn't the only place that you can learn how to read and you can learn how to meditate and you can learn about the cosmos. Like now everyone is their own authority. And I think that's the general movement is like these highly centralized bundled packaged authorities deconstructing and getting distributed throughout everything. And in a way, I think the challenge we have to, I, I believe the challenge we're going to have to deal with more broadly in the 21st century is the impact of the, of the total depersonalizing of these things and people learning how to apply them that have no real knowledge about where these things came from or what can happen if you, if you use them, misuse them or use them in ways that they weren't designed for. Um, like there's going to be a lot of fallout, I think, from people learning mindfulness from apps and eventually doing VR things and getting into dissociative states and zapping their brains like I just did. And, you know, already people are doing psychedelics, you know, and, and getting into territory they don't understand. So to me, it's like, there's an opportunity here, I think for us to bring the relational element back in to Dharma or uh, a little more like to, to in a way in the Dharma world, invite people into rela human relationships again and, and, and be able to like, hey, this is, there's community support for this. And there's like, you can talk to people about your experience and you can learn more about where these things come from. Uh, I think there's something valuable about that, um, even though it's really messy.
And I think the messiness is part of what we have to learn how to adapt with, you know, with Dharma communities. Like how do we be more transparent um, about authority and about finances? I think there's a lot we could learn from these like emerging decentralized web movements, like the web three uh, movements. Like how, how could we actually operate more like that where we're, we're operating in a transparent way above board, you know, um, instead of all of the sort of politicking that typically comes with these things, it's unavoidable. It's like you start an institution. I'm, I'm doing this with Buddhist geeks. You train people you know, it's like, how many people do you train? You know, what, what's the criterion that you're training? Like, do you just train people? Cause that's where the money is, or do you have like standards and, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> things like that. Um, so anyway, these are, these are more of like a, it's a more of a rant and a ramble than a, than a response to your question. But those are some of the things that came to mind. Well, you know, actually I, I did want to bring up the, you said you get your brain zapped. Are you able to talk about that at, at all? I mean, there was not a whole lot to say, except I, I, I uh, had a couple of researchers over here recently um, from the University of South Carolina, the brain stimulation, uh, the X, neuro X lab there, who developed this um, transcranial direct stimulator, and they call it Zendo, and they claim that it, um, that it has a positive impact on meditative experience. And they have like, you know, 250% reduction in whatever, increase in calm and 33% reduction in you know, uh, wa- you know, wandering th- mind or whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> Let me try it. Yeah. And it was interesting. Like it was much more interesting to me than, um, these sort of passive technologies I've used, like, like EEG, like very consumer grade EEG. Cause I haven't used yeah. the stuff that Daniel's got access to, but, um, like the muse headband, I found much less, uh, interesting than this particular device and probably because it was actually stimulating the brain. Um, yeah. So, you know, things like that, they're very, so, so early on in their development, but it's easy for me to imagine a future in which people are very easily able to reliably have altered state experiences that somehow correlate or map or, or relate to some of the stages and states of meditation and then just have nowhere to put the thing like, like in terms of yeah. the framework that they have, or, or they'll have whatever framework they've inherited. Um, we don't have a lot of good indigenous frameworks for this in, in the West um, that are, that are alive. So it's like how we how we're framing the significant, the meaning of these experiences, I think used to be within, it used to be the purview of these Dharmic institutions and now everyone's just making it up for themselves. So I think having communities where people are sense-making in wiser ways and offering like, a kind of path of genuine transformation with these experiences, not just like tripping out, you know, not just having an altered state experience and be like, that was cool, man. But like, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That actually changed how I look at myself and the world and my right. behavior yeah. and how I'm going to be yeah. <laughs> like that to me is, you know, where the Dharma world still could have something unique to offer. I think um, to, to the sort of growing secularizing of all these kind of contemplative psycho technologies as John. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if those technologies are, are going to get, and you know, I don't want to speculate too much, but like, say you have um, one of these technologies and with one of those technologies, you can bring somebody to like the arising and passing, right? Like that's, that's almost like, um, I don't want to say dangerous, but that's like pretty profound technology, (laughs) right? I mean, seriously though, right? I, yeah, right. I, it's kind of like holy, I agree. Crap. at least disruptive. Like, yes, right. You know, yeah. But, uh, 
but Daniel, I did. I know you have to leave soon. I wanted to ask you a question, and you can tie this into lineage, in a sense. Uh, you you had mentioned before a few times. I heard you mention the kind of like backroom Mahasi stuff, right? Like, oh, they'll notice like you're excelling, or you're doing well, and they'll say, oh, you know, they'll bring in the backroom and and teach you something or some you know some kind of like advanced teaching. Is am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So you know, what they'll teach on the front cushion in front of a bunch of people is noting and, and those kinds of techniques. But what they will teach in back rooms is advanced concentration stuff, jhanas, powers, um, yeah, basically that stuff. And so, you know, Naroda Samapati and things like that. And, you know, review training, you know, you know Aditana training resolutions to do things you know, reproducibly and, and on command and be able to call up states and stages and be able to get into fruitions for, you know, for long periods of time. And those are the things that you, that, because the Mahasi tradition is actually quite rich. It's just not rich on the front end. It's very sort of, um, mm. I mean, it's, it's much more like a, a package of very specific narrow range of technique stuff that will get you into deep experiences. But on the back end is actually very complicated. It's just that's not what you're going to see for most people. And did you have firsthand experience with that? Yeah. Um, so, for example, uh, Bill and also with Saito Upandita Jr. Yeah, and, and with Kenneth Falk, who also would talk about that and being taught some of that stuff, right? And yeah, and uh, that stuff. Did any of that, or I mean, uh, this is kind of a silly question, but how much of that went into you know mastering the core teaching of the Buddha? A lot, because I thought yeah. someone needs to write this stuff down. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's because <laughs> so I was. I just did the thing that they generally didn't do, which is write it down. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, he, Mahasi wrote about a lot of cool stuff. There's a lot of cool things you can find in his writings, which are actually vastly more expensive, right? I have all these little books, my, my Mahasi, that you can find, and you know, you get handed these things as you're walking out of Mahasi meditation centers in Asia. You don't see them in the West as much. So, it actually, you know, a lot of writing and stuff that we generally don't think as part of the tradition that definitely is. So, even the the notion that it's sort of simple or relatively restrained set of stuff on the front end is not true. His scholastic and output was actually quite impressive on a lot of fronts, and that's not fully well represented in the West yet. But um, yeah, but but you definitely see this where people start really talking deep meditative tech, and it becomes a much more complete sort of a thing. Yeah, because when I, every time I hear Mahasi, I just hear Mahasi noting, and yeah, no, you know, it's, it's I look at your book that. and I'm like. There, some of this has to be, you know, part of that, especially like oh, yeah. uh, when they're talking about the uh, Vipassana jhanas and stuff, um, you know, that's, I, I hear that so little when I hear about Mahasi in a general sense. Although it's very, if you start looking at Upandita, that's where you start seeing that. If you read like In This Very Life and books like that on the path of freedom, you see um, those kinds of uh, things talked about. And Bill was way into that stuff. And, um, and then apparently Ukundala and Ujanika Bhavamsa, also definitely teachers who would talk about those sorts of things. And Sada Upandita Jr., the, you know, the younger one, would also talk about um, powerful concentration states and stages and 
would talk a little bit about powers and and talk about deeper levels of realization and things. And so it's there. It's just that's not what you see on the front end. Yeah. That's not what you're gonna generally learn at IMS, right? I was gonna say IMS and Spirit Rock to me are really similar, Daniel, like the culture where I remember being on a two month at Spirit Rock and at, at the end of the retreat, some other retreatant who'd done two months as well came up and asked me what I was you know, about my retreat. And I, I said, oh, I was working on this, this, and this practice. They're like, what? That wasn't what was being taught. And they had this <laughs> idea that like everyone was doing the thing that the people at the front of the stage were telling us to do. And, and yeah, I knew there were a lot of people there that had, you know, independent practices and were doing things and still getting support uh, and even getting like quote unquote advanced teachings or whatever. Um, so it seems like maybe that cultural thing is uh, the same. There's still a kind of a back room um, within the insight world where it's like some people know that you can do the, all these other things and other people don't realize that and think it's just the thing that's being presented. Yeah. It yeah, would be yeah. like if it'd be like if people in early grade school didn't know that there was college and grad school and then mm -hmm. industry and academia after that. That's what it feels like to me is if everybody thought you just lived in fifth grade forever or whatever. Yeah. Cause that's exactly what I was going to ask is if IMS and, and spirit rock actually taught those kind of things. I think some of the teachers do, but I don't, um, it seems like a lot of that, that teaching does happen. It's not on the front of the stage per se, because not everyone's, well, not everyone wants to hear about some of these things, I guess, right off the bat. Uh, or they just haven't, yeah, people haven't, they found it's not palatable, I imagine, for a lot of folks when they're, you know, have a hundred person retreat every, you know, few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually have uh, tremendous sympathy for them. And I think about the analogy, I was thinking about like these one room schoolhouses that existed out on mm -hmm. the prairie or in plenty of places right. where you were teaching, you know, kids from like six to 17 or whatever in the same classroom. How yeah. in the world do you do that, you know, and do something that's appropriate for people at such radically different stages of learning and development? Um, mm. Or even, I mean, at least there you would get to see that there was a range of development. Whereas what mm. this often does is they they kind of cut off the high end, you know, which is they cut off the highs, lows, and weirds basically. It's like the compression, it, it's like compression on it is audio. Very much, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and is is there an issue? I, I don't want to say an issue, but is that is that a challenge going forward, where um, there may not be as many um, deeply experienced Dharma teachers, and and with the growing kind of interest and need in that kind of stuff. Well, it's funny, like I see no end of them. I can't keep up with them all. Like when you hang out a shingle and say you'll talk about the deep weird end of stuff. Like you get all these people. <laughs> yeah. I can't even remember all their names. Like, and these people with incredible talent and meditative capabilities who've done tons of retreat time and really plunged deep or had some natural capacity on on smaller amounts to go deep. I know lots of these people. I yeah, literally can't yeah. remember them all. And and they're out there and they network together. And I try to connect them into this network of people who care about this stuff. Right. And and that where that's what makes sense to them. That's what they resonate with. That seems, you know. And so they're out there, but the vast yeah. majority also do not want to be public is the other thing. So the incredibly harmful thing about the taboos and the sort of lineage, you know, dominance, toxicity, and, 
and all of that kind of stuff, as well as just the sort of dharma that doesn't want to deal with the highs, lows, and weirds, is that you end up being cut off from a tremendous amount of talent that just does not want to take the the public ridicule right. and the criticism. I mean, you've got to have some pretty tough skin to be out there about this stuff. And and anybody who's looked at my, the reactions to some of the stuff I've posted on Twitter or on forums or you know, read you you know comments on my YouTube videos, there's nearly always some toxic snarky whatever. And that what what people also don't realize is that you know, when you get to see what people, you know, what happens when you stick your heads up above the battlements and how many arrows start flying, what you don't then see is the number of people who are never going to stick their heads up above the battlements. And one of them might've actually been a great teacher for you, the person putting out the toxic snarky stuff. And you just were never going to meet them because they're not going to come out of the closet. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and those, a lot of those people are not tied to lineages, right? They're kind of just, not in the third solo. person sense, but in the second yeah, person right. sense and first person sense, definitely. Yeah. They're kind of just solo hardcore practitioners that are. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, with that in mind, um, what do you think about uh, people that are not included in lineages right uh so they're people that have maybe picked up mastering the hardcore teachings of the buddha or they're kind of just listening to the buddhist geeks podcast and they're they're running into territory what would you advise for people like that to do where they're not part of a lineage they're they don't have a, an official teacher so to speak um but they're they're you know again they're researching and they're practicing and they and they run into amp or stream entry or uh, you know disillusion or you know all these kind of uh the progress of insight stuff daniel do you want to jump in since your time's limited here all right cool i'll jump in <laughs> so reach out to people who know this stuff and there's lots of places to find this there's a lot of forums there's the dharma overground and its sister forums there's you know, there's 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 a bunch of teachers out there. There are meditation centers. There may even be local monasteries that you don't even recognize in your own community. They're all the. It's funny. Damarato has been talking a lot with me about encouraging people to try to connect with their local Asian Dharma centers because there's this incredible disconnect between the sort of traditional Asian centers in the West and sort of Western Dharma, where a lot of people. Um, may not realize that you might actually have very competent teachers and practitioners, even in your local temples that seem kind of a superficially realistic, sorry, ritualistic, um, but actually in practice may have some real talent or know where real talent is. And, and so, um, and then there's the whole transpersonal world of like various maps and models through transpersonal psychology, um, which has its own various ways of looking at some of these energetic or archetypal or whatever openings. Um, and but just community—that's the critical thing. And, and so, you know, again, that's why Vince and I originally created the Dharma Overground, as we were realizing there were all these people who wanted to have these conversations and were having these experience, experiences, and there were not safe spaces for that. Vince, do you have other suggestions? Yeah, no, I, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, there's a lot more places people can tap in now than there were ten years ago or twenty yeah, years huge. ago, for sure. Yeah, with the internet, there's been a proliferation of that. Um, so in a way, it's 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 much better now than it used to be, but it's still challenging. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think those are the, I mean, the things you mentioned are pretty, pretty basic stuff, like reach out, connect, talk to real people. Yeah. You know, talk, yeah. Find some real people to talk to, whether it's on a forum or over the phone or Zoom or, you know, if, if you can do it in person. Yeah, that's even better. Yeah. And if the, the EPRC project is successful, hopefully one day the mainstream mental health yes. and clinical systems will have substantially upgraded data-driven understandings that will allow them to add a whole lot more value to care and support of these things. Because again, as these things are scale, scaling globally, we have to have a mental health care system and a general health care system that can scale globally with them in terms of appreciation of these things. So if you're interested in you know, the EPRC, check us out at theeprc.org. That's theeprc.org. Thank you so much for allowing the shameless plug of the research group that I'm helping to support. Yeah. And I'll put the link in the description as well. Uh, and Daniel, I know you got to go. So yep. uh, Vin Vince and Daniel, starting with Daniel, do you have any last uh, you know, words to the audience overall about lineage and or 21st century dharma? Yeah, just keep your wits about you and see what really does help you lead a better, you know, more suffering, free, happier life. You know, if, if something's making you really angry or, or, you know, contracted or whatever, just look at that. If something's making you feel like, hey, no, this is, this is honestly helpful. Just look at that and, you know, be, be willing to be flexible um, in that and thoughtful and uh, yeah. And that's, and uh, follow the organic path that your life goes down. Cause we may come into lots of different relationships with these things at various times. And, and that can be okay and skillful. I've had all kinds of different relationships to questions of lineage over the years. And I think that's okay. Vince. I've, I've got nothing to add. I think this has been a, a delightful conversation and for those that made it this far, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, guys, for coming on. Always appreciate yeah. talking to you guys, and I hope Thanks, to talk James. to you guys again soon. All right. Thank take you, care. Appreciate Bye. It. Bye, Daniel. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.